Hello and welcome back to Bestowing the Brush. I'm so glad you're here again. Thank you for joining me tonight. Thanks for listening. I have a treat for you. It's me, just me today. I'm alone, but I'm not alone at the same time. I am here with Ruskin and WG Collingwood and Charlotte Mason to bring you a paper that I wrote a couple of years ago on this topic. As I was researching, I wanted to compile my thoughts. I wanted to share them with others. So I wrote this super nerdy paper about the architecture of the soul. And it is the what and the why of the Facile Club papers. So without further ado, I will just be reading that for you today. Now, right now. Enjoy. Architecture of the Soul, the Faisalet Club Papers, the what and why. If you take a brisk walk northeast of Florence, you will find a small town atop a hill that has been called the Balcony of Tuscany. The place is Faisalet, Italy, and the surrounding landscape has inspired some of the greatest and noblest artists in history. If you have been there late in the autumn of 1882, you could have overheard a conversation between the great art critic John Ruskin and one of his Oxford students as they went up to sketch Fra Angelico's monastery. That student, William Gershom Collingwood, recounted the conversation as follows. Just outside the gate, Mr. Ruskin, with whom I was then traveling, showed me how the Cyclopean masonry of the foundations seemed to pass by hardly noticeable degrees into a natural escarpment of living rock, so bedded and jointed that it looked like the handiwork of men. It seemed that the prehistoric builders had fixed that natural feature as the opportunity for their citadel, and only sought to complete and continue the natural wall by fitting together such blocks of native limestone as lay at hand, exactly after the pattern of nature, bed to bed and joint to joint. That, said Ruskin, began Etruscan architecture, exemplifying for all time the first law of good building, how stones may be well and truly laid. How stones may be well and truly laid. That phrase, penned by Collingwood, lodged itself in my mind. We gain a lot of inspiring ideas and practical help from the documents in the Charlotte Mason Digital Collection for Drawing and Art Instruction, yet I wonder if at times we've overlooked this suggestion in Mason's Home Education on page 314. If possible, let the children learn from the first under artists, lovers of their work. It is a serious mistake to let the child lay the foundation of whatever he may do in the future under ill-qualified mechanical teachers, who kindle in him none of the enthusiasm which is the life of art. Stated elsewhere, creating brush drawings by a sort of clever trick maims the delicate feelers of a child's nature by which he apprehends art. Emmeline Steinthal, another well-known art instructor helping Mason, describes the story from a family she knew. I met during the course of last summer in an interesting family, a mother and her three sons. Two of the boys, aged 11 and 13 respectively, have a great desire to become artists. 
They work from nature every day during the holidays and send their sketches every week to their master, a pupil of Mr. Ruskin's. Perhaps this mother had read, for subjects of peculiar educational value, if the mother doesn't have Joshua Reynolds' that in her, then let the children learn the first under artists, lovers of their work, from page 314 of volume one. These boys had had an atmosphere of education truly laid. Beauty and order were all around them. Their mother curated worthy art to adorn their walls. They may have even painted in their nature notebooks every day or had taken some brush drawing or chalk drawing in their elementary years. But when it came to the nitty gritty of drawing and painting instruction in fresco style, which was the popular English method of the day, perhaps the mother needed help to buttress the foundations she had laid. She provided her boys with the membership to a club. The sharing of knowledge, external accountability, interest, and the delight of them learning under a trained artist might have been appealing prospects to her. Mason must have seen this need for some apprenticeship from older students. But who would do it and what would be the plan? Enter Mr. Collingwood, a painter by trade and the aforementioned student of John Ruskin's, a home-educating father and an accomplished writer. We don't know who initially posed the idea, but he and Mason began planning a correspondence class for art instruction through the Parents' Review in January of 1891. Within the next two months, W.G. Collingwood published the first of his papers to the class, detailing a painting prompt and instructions full of delectable Ruskinisms for anyone enrolled in this new club. The methods and practices in the papers were written in the spirit of Ruskin's drawing handbook called The Laws of Fesole, which he meant to supersede his earlier manuals. Designed for art students at a university level, Collingwood reimagined the work to be well within the compass of middle school through high school age students. He wrote an intriguing monthly prompt outlining the subject and illustrating principles and techniques to be worked out on their own. Students would then practice for two weeks, and upon finishing, they'd send their best work in for written critique from their unseen and unknown teacher. He would then package the full portfolio along with the critiques and mail it out to be passed from student to student, allowing all the members to review it in full. Because of this, Students learned much in the sharing of their shortcomings and seeing the successes of others. Mason expresses similar ideas when she describes the nobler, motivating aspects of the quality of emulation that we all have in ourselves. The first six papers were written to focus on simple still life painting studies of living things from observation. Within each, the students are given a suggestion for a subject but are encouraged to draw what is available to them as the Tuscan masters did. The next six papers deal with elements of composition once the students show a firm grasp on the methods of treatment in fresco style. He places much emphasis on seeing and representing truly. He cleverly gives tips that he thinks will inoculate them against any execution difficulties 
but his comments added later show that he wasn't always able to prepare for the gaps in their understanding or the difficulties they'd come across, such as the frustration of preparing lessons, as the reader may well understand. In the paper entitled The Team of Phaethon, Collingwood lays out a definition of art for us, a fitting or joining of one thing to another. Nature provides the stones, art builds the house, he says. The students have gotten to know some simple forms in nature through sketching them while still and isolated. Now they must begin to learn how to wisely arrange them. The last two sections deal with landscape figures and portraits. My favorite paper, The Life School, lays out a pretty comprehensive philosophy behind his teaching of drawing in education. I particularly like his appeal to the common person. Exempt from public ambitions and modern aims, we found sermons in stones, unashamed and asked not to be famous painters, but only reverent lovers of art and humble followers of nature. In doing this, he requires the reader to question his motives in painting. Is it for public glory or is it for the humble pursuit of strengthening our powers and going forward in upward direction? Real painters continually bemoan how far off they are in their mark-making and execution because of how perfect and awe-inspiring nature is in reality. And the more our understanding broadens, the more we realize we don't know. What continually motivates us, though, is knowing that our work is still worth doing if it is a pursuit of understanding more fully the true, good, and beautiful. So, what are the laws of Fesole? Well, they sure weren't systematized or sapped of life. They were in accordance with those methods which a long experience and study had shown him, Ruskin, to be the best and truest. Natural and simple canons of practice, like that earliest Etruscan building, developing the powers which we all have in our possession in solid and straightforward progress. Another powerful thought from Collingwood on this progression of art teaching is that Ruskin's teaching, like art, has a vital power. And one of the evidences is of its vitality and its growth. To those who find saplings useful for walking sticks, a full-grown tree is otiose. It's a cheap thing to adopt a system and to stick to it. When it is cut and dried, it is apt to command less confidence but you trust the living bough. What is the living bough? Though the phrase is a little nebulous, I think it might mean to look at growth in a multifaceted way, always in one general direction, but springing upward from roots firm in the ground. A tree grows up and out along many railways, branching out, turning and twisting to find the light but it is firmly rooted in one starting point and eagerly trying to reach the light. These are not newfangled ideas about art, but instead the unfolding revelation of our creator's character and purpose. Over the course of one man's life in the pursuit of art philosophy and education, 
Ruskin's long experience and comprehensive body of knowledge helped him write a drawing manual that would stand the test of time. I think it qualifies that as a living book. This was the main lesson Ruskin had been teaching so far as he was able through his whole life. Only that picture is noble, which is painted in love of reality. Mason cites Ruskin in Home Education saying that the purpose of teaching drawing is so that some object of beauty will be imprinted in their minds for all their lives to come. That possession should be the student's rightful prize in the pursuit of making art. Not merely a pretty picture, not a half hour's mere entertainment or the glory of recognition, but the slow and true building up of the architecture of his own soul, repairing its broken places, strengthening its winker sides, raising its height still higher, the edification of living temples. Do we know what were the exact outcomes of this club? No, I do not personally have any information on that yet. But the fact that the club ran for four years does speak to its sustainability in some fashion. I hope that the students delighted in emulating one another properly or learning how to through their club, always with a mind to be first without vanity and to be the last without bitterness. As a member in any group like this, we can have the courage of frankness and we can practice such a hearty outgoing of love and sympathy that joy in our brother's successes takes the sting out of our own failure. If we are open-minded to receive critique and to also give it tactfully and truthfully, we build upon that same soul architecture. We rarely improve when we have no standard to reach or example to follow. Iron sharpens iron. This is why Collingwood also sent around printed plates of Ruskin's and other painters' works as examples, hoping to illustrate some points better shown, but also to call the members up to a higher standard. We don't expect perfection from our pupils because of any tool we may use in art instruction. But we do know that the art sense and these skills, the powers of seeing, drawing and painting, are something learnable and cultivated. We use patience, laying them line upon line to secure strong foundations. We learn, we practice, and we are helped by the suggestions and examples of others. Collingwood was the patient mentor of the Fasole Club for four years. I will leave you with his concluding remarks published in his last paper. In these four years, we have traveled over a wide field of study from simple objects of still life to landscape and the rudiments of composition and portraiture. We painted all manner of animals and applied ourselves not in vain to figures and faces. Those members who were able to give reasonable attention to the work of the club as set forth in the papers, and still more in the criticisms and instructions of the monthly portfolio, do not, I believe, regret the time they spent. They were taught few tricks of the trade, still less were they induced to imitate any popular mannerism. 
for the aim of this club was to make drawing the means of a true education, by which, in learning to sketch, one may learn a more valuable art, the art of seeing. So there you have it. That was Collingwood and a little bit about Ruskin in my paper on the Fessel Club papers. Thank you for listening today. And just so you know, I did design my brush drawing and chalk and charcoal course to go very nicely along with these, but I designed my course to be the prerequisite to the work in the Fessile Club papers. And if you don't already know it, Riverbend Press put out a reprint of the Fessile Club papers, and I will put a link in the description for that. I recommend checking it out if you want to hear more about this and to get these ideas into your head. All right. Happy drawing, everyone. Bye.